drank pots and pots and pots and pots of strong black coffee. Hello, welcome to the exchange, a podcast presented by Own Specialty Coffee, hosted by Mark Inman and Todd Mackey. I'm Mike Ferguson. You're on the ground floor. This is season one, episode one of the exchange. Mark and Dodd have a conversation about discipline and best practices around buying green coffee. Our hosts are a continent apart, so at the mercy of the Skype guides. But it's a great conversation filled with insight for new green coffee buyers and even the old hands. And now, Mark and Todd. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Mark Inman, Director of Sales for North America for a long specialty coffee. And with us is, uh, of course, my co-host, Todd Mackey. Todd? Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange. Glad to be uh, getting into our first episode here. I have uh, handle training and also uh, sales for Olam Specialty based out of our Northeast Providence, Rhode Island office. One of the segments we want to start out with each uh, episode is what's in your cup, Todd? What are you drinking today? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm drinking a coffee that uh, is named for the municipality uh, where the smallholders contributing to the lot are, are based. Uh, this coffee uh, we're calling Union Cantonil. It's uh, a Huehue Tenango coffee, uh, and uh, we're pretty uh, happy with the arrivals. Uh, we've got you know three to four containers uh, above the two I believe we brought in last year. Um, just a small holder community lot and it's, uh, it's crushable. Subtle notes, tropical fruit, chocolatey. Uh, to me, the, a definitive drinking coffee opposed to a tasting coffee. You know, mm-hmm. something you want to actually, you know, drink in volume. Hence the, uh, the, the refill post lunch here on the East Coast about, yeah. uh, a 1 p.m. Eastern. So that's what I got. What do you have going? Well, I, uh, have actually been, interested in all of the coffees coming off this farm, but today I'm doing the Zambia Black Honey. Uh, this is actually, I, I actually prepped ahead here, PC12603, which is uh, still available uh, on the West Coast, the East Coast. A lot of this has been sold out. Um, I have really liked the Zambia Washed, uh, the, both the Mafinga and Nisiana, um coffees coming off of those farms. And then uh, this year they did a natural and a black honey. Both, I think, are equally uh, good in their own ways. Uh, and today I decided to brew that black honey. And I've been really in, you know, lately the trend, you know, for me is uh, sweetness, getting sweet coffees and, and rich and round coffees and less on the acid uh, side of the spectrum. And this one delivers it in, in spades. It's, you know, very caramel driven, uh, sweet, almost like a, a viscous. It's got a thickness to it. Uh, and then definitely apricot, kind of peach driven in the flavor. Um, real solid, sweet coffee. I think this would make a fantastic iced coffee as well. Um, but I mean, God, what an amazing uh, grouping of farms, uh, you know, happening in Zambia. So pretty happy with these. Awesome. So today, Todd, uh, we wanted to talk about uh, buying strategy and uh, based off of an article that I had written uh, quite a while ago uh, for us. Uh, and, and something that both you and I have talked about extensively at, at trade shows, which is uh, both of us being having a background of roasting and buying as well as selling uh, green coffee, uh, things we've learned, mistakes we made when we were roaster, 
uh, tips we would have for the, the incoming or newer roaster on what not to do as well as what to do. Todd, give, give me a little bit of background on your uh, buying experience and, and roasting and, and, I don't know, maybe a little tale of where you went wrong in your past. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've worked, uh, you know, I came into the industry as a barista and, and that quickly uh, led me to work for uh, a regional wholesale roaster um, where, you know, I was uh, doing everything from production uh, to sales, support and uh, training uh, as well as quality. So, you know, my, my, uh, my role there was really focused on, you know, liaising around quality and, in, in our bookings and commitments. And, uh, and certainly, you know, handling, uh, you know, small to mid-sized roasters, uh, and, and our business here at Olam, you know, I run into a lot of things that bring me back uh, to those times, you know. A uh, big key word for this, uh, you know, this episode is discipline. And I think, uh, you know, your piece reading back, uh, on the blog post that we're, we're sort of paying homage to, you know, that really comes up in a number of ways we'll get into. But, um, but there's also a lot of ways, you know, for the new buyers, uh, to kind of think forward, you know, think, uh, and project kind of, you know, maybe not even so much where you are, but where you want to be around the, uh, building good disciplines uh, to get the type of results from a supplier like Olam um, that you hope. Yeah, and, and, and I think one of the things that took me a while to learn when I was uh, early on in my roasting and buying career was that I was responsible for the largest expenditure of the company. And I think that when you look at it as, you know, when a lot of us get into green buying, uh, we want to be more of an artist and we want to find amazing, you know, cupping coffees and coffees that blow our minds. But and, and less that of what am I using this coffee for? What's the utility of the coffee? And does it fit within the price point that we're going to be selling the coffee for? So a much more disciplined uh, way of looking at buying rather than just buying for the sake of finding great coffee. And and that took me a while to figure that out. My story was a bit unique because back when I started in roasting and buying, it was 1990. Um, you were probably in junior high then or something like that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a uh, a young I wouldn't go that buyer. far. Yeah, no, not that far. Uh, um, I guess I guess you're right, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I was running a company that did 100% organic coffee, and that time in coffee, there wasn't really a lot of supply. And if the supply was available, you had to act quickly. So that that type of pressure uh, easily laid the groundwork for making very poor decisions. And one of, probably one of the largest mistakes I had made was buying uh, bigger than my company had the ability to use. And it was more of the idea that if I ran out of something, I was in real trouble. And it was just about securing supplies so we could roast another day. And what I didn't think about at the time was the amount of carry costs and storage costs and financing costs that were associated with doing that. And at the end of the day, what that equaled uh, in cost uh, to the, the overall product. It wasn't just the price per pound I was paying. It was uh, another bill I received months later that made the difference between making a profit and taking a loss. And so that was probably one of the, I guess, the largest lessons that I could teach anybody is, you know, understand the total cost of this product that you're buying 
uh, over the long haul. If you're buying coffee and you're not going to use it for six months, understand that any importer that you're going to buy this from uh, is going to uh, have storage and financing fees because storage isn't free. They have to pay warehouse space. They have to pay their their if you're not paying for the coffee up front, they're actually financing the cost of that coffee for you, and they have to charge you a fee associated with that that financing. And in some cases, uh, you know, what I end up seeing more times than not, at what, when I was buying, and I certainly see it a lot with customers I work with, is that in the long run, what ends up happening is that when they do this kind of overbuying, uh, at the end of the day, they're dealing with stale coffees because they've been letting them sit too long and they've paid way too much for that coffee in the long run. So it actually defeats the purpose of buying that great cupping coffee because you only get that experience for the first few months. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you get into uh, dangerous territory if you're in wholesale and you're in, you know, small margin business, you know, if you're, uh, you know, aiming to grow volume by cutting your margins way down. I mean, you have this sort of moving piece of your cogs uh, that's only building with time. I guess, you know, one thing you're getting into, which is it's interesting to me, especially being, uh, you know, so drastically your junior here. Huh. Um, <laughs> uh, joking, of course. But, but the, uh, you know, the, the pressure you're talking about in terms of pulling in coffees that, that are hitting, you know, the specs quality wise you need, you know, obviously being an organic roaster and focusing on that segment, you know, that, that space in terms of what's available spot and, and forward now has grown dramatically. Yes. But additionally, you know, good coffees on the spot are much more available uh, than they've been. I guess I'd be curious to, to have you explain a little bit more from your perspective mm-hmm. over, over the, the last 20 years, you know, how that's changed. Because I do think, you know, you know, even when I was uh, working uh, as, you know, for a roaster, you know, we found much less, uh, you know, really solid coffee available, just ready to go uh, spot Oakland or spot New Jersey, where, what right. have you. Right. You know, and, and I think that there is a, a certain pressure that, that, you know, roasters would benefit to kind of take off their shoulders in having to, you know, decide so soon or take the first best thing or in, in knowing exactly the, you know, this kind of balance of price uh, to value. Well, I think what's changed, I mean, I, I used to say this a lot, uh, the customers I was selling coffee to, uh, as well as in presentations I used to give that, Back in the early 90s, especially in organics, I the, the bulk of the availability was Sumatra, Guatemala, Mexico, and Peru. And when I, if I were to compete with somebody that was not doing organic exclusively, I felt like I was a painter that only had green, orange, and blue as my color palette, and I had to make the same amount of art that they had to make. And it was very difficult to pull that off. And then slowly... Uh, as the years progressed, new countries were starting to get certified and learn about, you know, more sustainable types of coffee farming until you had really, I, I think, uh, you know, the peak was, was around 2000, where there was a massive uh, interest in sustainable farming and a lot of government assistance and a lot of project work going on. And then from that, you've just seen it expand. Now you can find organic coffee in just about every country in the world. but we're what I think the dynamic has shifted to now 
is either uh, micro lots that have you know become all the rage, where you as the buyer want to own this certain micro lot and you feel the pressure that if you don't act quickly, relegated to second, third tier copies in your mind that are out there. And I think that pressure uh, creates the same type of mistakes in buying that that my sense of scarcity of organic supply caused. Uh, because the I think the myth of you know these certain micro lots, if you miss out, it's the only great good car you're going to get out of the country. Is just simply not true. I, and I mean the work you've done, Honduras and uh, Guatemala. You know your guys are finding tons of great micro lots. There really is not this urgency to buy or miss out because there's there's plenty available. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean that doesn't. Uh, I mean it, I think there's a push and pull to it for sure. I think you're absolutely right. You know the amount of potentially great coffee uh, available on the origin side is is fantastic. I mean there yeah. there could literally be a deluge. Uh, you know if the capacity building commitments and the efforts remain and you know and ramp up. I mean you know there's no limit to what you can do right. Sure. Um, but it's a matter but, but of still. Even if that were true, this deluge would still not meet the global demand for better and better coffee. Sure. So I think from a farming perspective, if you think, oh, my God, you know, if, if I don't jump in or if I start jumping in now by doing more high and micro lots, I'm going to miss the wave and that all these coffees are going to be dirt cheap. I don't think they're ever going to be dirt cheap. But on the other hand, there's not an urgency to make a hasty decision. From the buyer selling perspective, and um, you know, where does that pressure come from? I think it's internal. I don't think, you know, as a buyer, I'd ever had an importer or a farmer giving me the impression that if I didn't act quickly, I was going to miss out. I think I just somehow felt that that was always going to be the case. And now, working with buyers, looking for micro lots or specific copies, there is also that internal pressure of if I don't jump on this now, it's gonna I'm gonna make a call next week and the coffee's gonna be gone. And um I've never seen that to be a problem. Sure, but there are circumstances where it might, right? I mean, example, I'm a roaster who, you know, I'm selling a coffee year on year transparently as itself, whether yeah. You know, sold on the farm name or the the uh, farmer that they themselves, right? Um, and uh, and you know, the time comes to uh, make the booking, and you know, as as we often joke, right, everything for sale until it's sold, and there does come a time, even as a point of discipline, right, to to know what you need and what you want, uh, what you can sell, and and ultimately, most importantly, what your customers want, right, um, and actually say, well, with clarity and a, and a strong forecast in place this is what i need to commit to right um sure you know, so that i think that's what i mean to get at where there's yeah a, a bit of push and pull to it where you know quite literally especially if you're talking hey i stumbled upon this fantastic spot coffee and you know there's no plans for replacement to come in you know within the crop cycle you should you know you should kind of uh you know before you go fishing you should do your math, figure out what you what you actually need for you know this slot in your program, and make the booking before you have to replace it with something that's maybe not priced uh, where you need it to be, or you know, doesn't fill your objectives for the for the product. What you're talking about is is much more the case, and ultimately, 
uh, in my experience, agrees entirely. You know, the good decision is the one where, you know, you measure a few times. You know, you take your time. Decisions made in haste don't uh, don't pay. Yeah, I do think when you get to the point, if you are offering in a certain farm or a certain farmer or, or a certain micro lot year round, not year round or seasonally, let's say, you do have to act when the coffee becomes available. I don't think you can, you know, sit on your hands and wait for the market and, you know, do a lot of these things. If you know you need so many bags of this a year and if the, if the bags uh, are finite, then you have to, you know, pull the trigger and do this. Um, I do think that that has to happen and that there, there certainly needs to be a certain discipline there if you want to maintain that. <clears throat> I do not think, however, you need to necessarily go crazy here because I, I think that in any kind of product that you, you know, you may be into, and I have certain, you know, a lot of products I, I like to buy. If I find that something sells out because I, as I, as the customer didn't come in, uh, then it adds to that exclusivity or desirability. So as a roaster, I, you know, I always tell people eat till you're 80% full. And I learned that it's an old Buddhist, uh, saying don't buy necessarily over what you need or don't buy what you're projecting you need because many times we all tend to over project our needs unless you have a very, very accurate way of forecasting because we could always find you a fill. But if you do sell out, your customer is not going to be upset with you. They're going to feel like they missed out and they're going to come in earlier next year. And, uh, you know, that's why you have limited edition sneakers and limited edition, you know, pressings of vinyl, uh, because it creates demand and hype and a feeling of something being truly special. But I've also seen the flip side where a customer says, yeah, I need this specific farm, you know, each year and we book it. And then I say, hey, we have it. So many bags are available. All right, well, let me think about it. And then you don't hear from them for a month. And then they come back and what they needed, you only have about 30% of that. That's just, to me, undisciplined buying. Sure, sure. Absolutely agree. I mean, I feel like even just the baseline, you know, the communication clearly and uh, and with timing considered, hey, I'm going to be in the market for X, Y, Z you know, when the time comes, you know, even just having that in, in my pocket enables us to do so much more for a customer uh, to support their business when it comes to, uh, you know, buying on type or, you know, target quality or, you know, very specific, uh, you know, farms or, or you know, uh, beneficios uh, coffee, right? I, I love this, you know, even until you're 80% full uh, mantra because, you know, it makes so much sense. You know, so many of us uh, in the uh, you know in the roasting space are finding that you have to have new, different, exciting, right? Yeah. And you know, to me, one of the aspects getting back to the spot being full of great coffee, you know, more or less at any given time, leaving that twenty percent, or or if you're growing, you know, above and beyond expectations, great, even more. It actually allows you to kind of dip a toe, if you will, into the new origins or processing. You know, you pick up something like this black honey from uh, from right. Zambia, and you know that is a is a particularly uh, interesting way of looking at that. You know, uncovered upside. It, it gives you a chance to be more creative uh, and opportunistic. You know, whether it's you know quality and or you know just base value against price right sure um sure. which is cool so 
That's awesome. I mean, you know, let's let's shift a bit here and yeah. let's talk. You know, you're you're already long, right? You have well beyond what you need within a given, uh, you know, crop cycle or you know within your given forecast. You know, what do you think the the disciplined buyer and and you know obviously a key function of a buyer whether you know buying the coffee, roasting the coffee, brewing the coffee, or they're buying it and filling uh, silos either literally or you know figuratively for the roasting and the production crew uh, to then put those coffees out. I mean, what is the what's the disciplined response when you when you find you're behind your forecast and you're sitting on a position? Right. Um, you know, what do you recommend? Well, there's a lot of things I recommend. You know, when I had my roasting company, I always wanted to befriend and ally the other roasters in the area. And that served me a couple of purposes. One was that a lot of us were doing different things. So there was real no overlap or threat of competition. But secondly, uh, we could help each other out. We could either save on trucking because we could merge stuff and palletize and do it together. Or if I had an overage, I can see if they wanted to buy some of the green. You know, did they need it because I had too much? Uh, or if I was running low on something that was exclusive, did they have it? I could buy it from them. So having that regional relationship, I think, is very uh, good to have, especially if it's in short driving distance for picking up and, and, and selling. Um, Leaning on your sales staff, can you uh, accelerate this? Can you put it on sale to to move it faster, to roast it, uh, and still make a profit? Uh, is there a special, or can you um, find a new customer? You know, something in that way to where you're actually just accelerating your run rate of the coffee. And then finally, it's to find an alternative use for the coffee. Would it serve a purpose in other parts of your blend line? where you are using more volume, uh, does it meet the costing and the price point to work within that? Does it meet the taste spec to work within that? Although I, I want to back up and say I, I what I hear a lot of people doing is they just take all of their mistakes, overages, you know, copies that they bought incorrectly and just always French roast it. You hear that all the time. Well, we'll just French roast it off. And, and then we wonder why nobody likes dark coffee because dark coffee literally becomes the, the, uh, the soup of the day, uh, a blend. And that's not how you should look at coffee. You know, your dark roast, you should put the same care and attention into your dark roast that you would put into your lighter medium roast. But a lot of these coffees that we have that are single origin or, or more focused type of, uh, coffees within our lineup, can serve a purpose within our blend line if we if we buy thinking of but I put this here here and here if things don't work out so it allows you to actually have an out for yourself but obviously the best way to do this is to try to get your sales staff to move it quicker put it on special on you know if you sell the grocery putting it on sale because everyone loves a sale or or a promotion to uh, to get people to buy more and then. That network, having a very strong network locally or regionally is probably the best thing you can have uh, in your, uh, you know, your business model for many, many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a home for every coffee, right? We always of say. Course. Yeah. And it's, uh, but it's coming up with, with some sort of, you know, utilitarian treatment in real time, you know, before you get into a place where 
you know, you're you're trying to save skin with a coffee that was that was a little lovely at one point. You're grossly discounting it, trying to put it in something, uh, you know, by the time you actually get to pulling a trigger. You know, I mean, there is there's a time to uh, take losses, you know, early on uh, when you still can can save some, uh, you know, save your shirt or save some skin or whatever sure. you call it. And I think that having the discipline and, and the foresight to actually talk about that proactively is uh, is a key discipline, you know, when you're talking about uh, supply chain management, purchasing, uh, and just like, you know, running a sound business in general. Um, sure. you, know, you could you could work a whole year and, and you have just one, you know, drain at the bottom of the bucket and it washes out anything else uh, you could have, you know, accomplished, um, which certainly if you're a, a missional or driven, you know, vision driven company i mean your business vitality is how you get to, to all the good stuff right well and it, it certainly points to the idea of not going too uh obscure with your buying when you're buying in quantity because if you do over project so unique and so different of a profile you're stuck and and that certainly happened with me. Uh, you know, in one case, I took a twenty-one thousand dollar hit because I could not use this coffee elsewhere, and I sat on it three years. And it, I mean, twenty-one thousand uh, dollars for a, a new smaller uh, wholesale company is a, a marketing campaign. It's a website. It's a couple origin trips. It equals a lot. It could have been Christmas bonuses for everybody in the in the warehouse. You know, that was a major mistake. And um, every month that you're having that coffee unused is a month you're paying an additional uh, carry charge that adds up very quickly. Yeah, let's let's shift again. I mean, one of the things that to me, you know, reeks of of great discipline is the whole approval process when people book out coffees, especially looking for their top spots, you know, in advance of landing. You have SAS, NANS contracts. There's going to be uh, timely um, feedback and, you know, three business days, ideally, and that we're going to get people, uh, you know, calibrated where over time, I mean, we're selling, you know, an 86 plus uh, washed Ethiopia, for example, and, and it's approved and, you know, we hear back and boom, 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 everybody is uh, is feeling good. But I mean, how often do you run into this? And, you know, I feel like I see it often where, you know, for the hope of a 90 a buyer's rejecting an 87 and ultimately after we shuffle through and try to, you know, help, uh, you know, piece things together, we end up sort of having to uh, agree on an 85. Um, right. Which, you know, at the end of the day, to me, it's that super top echelon of coffees is extremely hard to predict. It's a moving target. I mean, there's right. snowflakes. You look at one moment, they're there and beautiful and you look the next and they're gone. Uh, you know, for a myriad of reasons, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, do you feel like you see that? What is your message to, you know, a buyer like that? I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking from, from my side to see someone end up, you know, getting a more average quality coffee for this, this, you know, top tier, uh, application when really, you know, they had first crack at it. And of course, you know, if the rejection come flowing in and calibration can't be found, you know, obviously we have to kind of ease back on even offering that type of booking opportunity yeah. in in advance of landing just for the fact that we can't, you know, make perfectly sellable copies unsellable for no good reason, right? Yeah, I, I think that the more seasoned the buyer, the less risky that business becomes because buyers that have 
been doing this for a while understand that that snowflake is that moving target and there's a certain leeway with you know sometimes the coffees actually improve on their way over here or sometimes they degrade and I think where this becomes a greater issue is when somebody's very new to the the buying position that this becomes a problem I, I guess I first I mean we'll get to this I guess in a minute because I do want to back up a bit is explaining what SASNANS means uh, for those of those listening who do not understand that term and we can do that. But essentially, you know, where this becomes a problem is calibration from the buyer to the seller. So, you know, am I calibrated with the customer or what's the scale, you know, that people are dealing with? I mean, when a lot of buyers that are newer, younger, or do a lot of reading of trade magazines, they'll say, well, we only buy coffees that are, you know, 94 plus in cup score. And they're dealing with a scale that you see in trade magazines or uh, consumer publications, not the traditional Q system or the established SCAA cupping system, where you know if you look at Ken David's copy, uh, an 85 or an 87 would be an inferior product. But in the trade, 87 is fantastic. So when I deal with that type of a client, I always say take your score that you're looking for and shave 10 points off of it. And that's the score that the trade's talking about. When you're marketing coffee to the consumers, you know, 92, 95, 97, those are scores you, you hear all day long. But nobody's going to write a contract for a coffee, a 97 plus uh, landed cup score. Yeah, I mean, to get into, uh, you know, I think you're, you're right, to get into uh, SASNANs, I mean, do you want to give an outline of, of how yeah. you present that to a to Sure. SASNANs and SAS Replace are the two greatest. Hey everybody, it's time for the lowdown with Rob Steven. This is the segment where I drop into a conversation that's already in progress and give my completely unsolicited input. Uh, I heard Todd and Mark talking about SAS contracts and I decided to uh, fill you in on my thoughts on SAS contracts. So SAS contracts uh, are a tool that uh, roasters can use to sort of jump the line and hold copies that uh, they would like preferred access to or to uh, hold a price and uh, at a time when coffee is not available and uh, have access to it um, at the quality level that they want. Um, so SAS contracts are, are contracts. It's a mechanism for, for buyers to uh, buy smarter and better um, and as uh, with any contract, they have obligations and uh, rights and responsibilities. So let's talk about those for a second. Um, there's two types of SAS contracts. SAS stands for subject to approval of sample. Uh, so that means the contract is going to go one way if the contract is approved, and it's going to go one way if the excuse me if the sample is approved, and one way if the sample is rejected. And so let's talk about that. One of the flavors that we have is what we call NANS or SASNANS. Uh, NANS stands for no approval, no sale. So this is a contract that you would do to hold coffee while you're waiting for a sample. The most typical application of this would be you see a coffee on the website that you would uh, very much like uh, to have, at least based on the description. There's only a few bags left. You have a strong idea that you want them, but you want to taste it first. 
So you give your trader a call and you say, I'd like to do a SAS, NANS, or SASNANS contract uh, on this copy. And what will happen then is the trader will write that contract that will hold the copy so that it won't be sold to anybody else. Uh, they'll then send you a sample and you'll have three business days to approve or reject it. If you approve it, the copy's yours and the contract is executed. And if you reject it, the copy is uh, put back into the pool for sale and the contract is canceled. Um, so this helps uh, an importer by uh, giving another tool to sell copy uh, to people who want it. And it is uh, something that really helps roasters by getting access to copies and still allowing uh, for tasting of the copy. Um, what often happens is people will see a coffee that they like, they'll order a sample, and in the three days of transit between the sample getting to them and then roasting it and cupping it, it gets sold out, and then they're disappointed. And so this is a way to head that disappointment off. Um, this is something that we do with people that we trust, people that we're calibrated with, people that we know that if we hold the coffee for a few days and don't sell it, that they are going to take a, a good shot at it and that they're going to uh, give the coffee a fair chance and, and that uh, they're most likely to buy it if they like it. Um, so we do those a lot, and if you're not doing that, that's definitely something that you should talk to your trader about, especially if you uh, experience the disappointment of having a sample sent to you, cupping it, loving it, and then finding out that it's gone. Um, the other way that we can do these SAS contracts is on a replace basis, and we call those SAS replace. Uh, that is usually done to either hold a price uh, or to hold a commitment um, for a type of coffee uh, where the coffee is not very unique um, and it's got a lot of uh, different range of, of acceptable qualities or cup profiles. And so this is broader. This is usually done on a larger volume basis. Um, so for example, we might say uh, we're going to sell a, um, a Kenya uh, AA. Um, we have six or seven lots. You know that you want one um, and we'll try this one and then we'll try that one and then we'll try this one until you get one that you like. And so what happens is we send you a sample. If you approve it, it's yours, contract's executed. If it's not approved, we can send you something else, and we'll keep doing that until you approve something. Uh, but basically, because it's not a no-approval, no-sale contract, you've made the commitment, and now it's just up to us to find copy that matches that commitment. Um, and so that's something that uh, might have a more narrow application, but it uh, is also an extremely useful tool. So we write both of those contracts on a regular basis, and if you're not using those contracts, you should definitely talk to your trader. Uh, because those are things that uh, really separate uh, roasters getting uh, good coffee and getting great coffee and having access to coffees uh, that other people don't have access to. Um, always important to understand how they work. Talk to your trader in depth. Uh, we have uh, some blog posts on how SAS contracts work. Traders are all very versed in it. Um, it's important not to abuse them. Uh, if you uh, you can't use it to squat on coffee, you can't use it to hold copies just so somebody else won't get them or to hold a bunch and knowing you're only going to pick one, you should really only use them for copies that you know you're going to buy um, as long as they cup out. Um, I think that an SAS contract should be an essential part of what you do. And uh, if it's not, give us a call. Let us help you out. Until my next interruption, this has been The Lowdown with Rob Stevens. I looked at importers almost like used car salesmen. Like, I, I want to interact with them as little as possible. I have this fear every time I get on the phone, I'm going to be hustled. And ultimately, I know what I want. 
I just don't want to have a constant sales pitch. And what I end up learning is that instead of me being one buyer, if I had really good relationships with importers, all of a sudden I became five buyers. I had five people, you know, at any given time cupping at their office every day and thinking about, wow, this may work for Mark and giving me a call, which is an unbelievable benefit to have. And that benefit happened because I had open, clear communications with some importers. I gave them a very clear idea of what I was trying to accomplish as a, as a business, the types of coffees that interested me, what I was willing to uh, buy, what price points I was willing to look at. And it gave them clear marching orders. If you come across this and you think it's perfect for my company, by all means, give me a call. And that type of relationship, I mean, you can't put a price tag on it. And any buyer that is going to survive in this industry has to have that type of relationship with at least one importer. Obviously, the more importers that you have, that type of relationship is going to be better. But I mean, how awesome is it to have somebody like you call and say, hey, I found something that's really perfectly tailored for your company uh, that I wouldn't have just stumbled across myself? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, I I love what you, you get into uh, there because, you know, I have this conversation, what feels like pretty frequently, we're really just hawking, you know, hawking right. knockoff watches or something, you know, which let, let's not, not hit. I mean, you know, you certainly need to know what you should be spending or can be spending and, and you know, know quality. Um, you know, that's that needs to happen for you to, to know who you want to align with. But, I you know, I'd be devastated. Uh, to find that, you know, someone who, you know, I, I trust feels like I forced a cop on them, you know, that is totally unsuitable or, you know, at a, uh, you know, some grossly inflated price or, you know, we don't win this game by making sale, right? You know, I mean, no. this is, there, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, you know, retirement to the beach when, you know, we clear a pallet. The way we win is when, you know, the businesses we're doing business win and grow and, and we, have uh, career long relationships um, that, you know, we can see each other's, you know, shared success. Um, but, but I do think, you know, to, to establish that, that feeling that, uh, that you have when you're discussing things out and, and you're like, man, if it didn't hit, it didn't hit, you know, we don't have to belabor the point. Let, let's not waste the time. Let's move on. Well, at the end of the day, for all of us, this is a relationship driven business with a, a coffee farmer and a buyer, uh, a roaster, or a, an importer and a roaster, uh, those that last have great relationships and strong relationships and deep relationships. Uh, as an importer, I would rather have five clients that I talk to weekly that I really understand what they're trying to accomplish and they understand my ability to find them certain coffees uh, than have 200 customers that I talk to frequently and they come in by a pallet and, and I never hear from them again. I, at that point, I may as well be selling t-shirts. Each person in the link in the chain has strengths that they can help you with. And, and my experience in this industry, if I can help somebody improve their business or get one step better as a company, uh, I have an immense uh, feeling of accomplishment at the end of the day for me. And that is why in this industry, it, if, if it was just flipping bags, I would have lost interest in this career path a long time ago. You know, if you're a coffee buyer, 
go find those relationships and, and, and they may not all work. You have to find a person that you connect well with and you can speak with and that understands or has a desire to really understand what they're trying to do. They're looking for copies and looking for opportunities to help you better yourself. All that costs you is just a normal transaction that you're going to do anyway. So if you actually spend the time to communicate exactly what you're trying to accomplish, you're giving somebody clear parameters to go to work for you. And, uh, and if they're willing to do that, that's a match made in heaven. It takes energy. It takes uh, some repetition in some cases. But, uh, you know, not everybody is for everyone uh, the same True. way uh, as in anything. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it pays to get to know people, you know, uh, and, and the business and the success, most importantly, in the business, you know, uh, for both sides, you know, come with that. Lots of understanding on both sides. Right. Uh, we're sort of cruising into a landing here, but I have yeah. one m- more item to kind of riff on. I think it would okay. be fun. But, you know, obviously, you know, just knowing, uh, you know, the nature of our work and, you know, what what we're managing day to day, you know, there is a certain element of like, well, hey, cool, beyond just the core competencies that, that you know, we would advocate for you know, for a buyer to build and to really prize within them, themselves, you know, and their peers, you know, there's there's got to be a certain profile of a buyer in terms of, you know, key behaviors mm-hmm. that just make it really easy to crush it with them. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it, it's a nice way to sort of, of uh, sort of finish the conversation. But like, sure. you know, if you had to outline, you know, in behaviors, you know, the perfect buyer or the, you know, the buyers that you really enjoy most to work with, I mean, you know, what are the things that are hallmarks of, of the way that they handle themselves? Well, for me, I think the the top three skill sets that I look for, uh, the biggest one is the ability to clearly communicate your needs. If, if you can do that, and I can receive that message, I understand the job I'm there to do for you. Um, so with any client, I always take an hour kind of interaction phone call to get a clear understanding of what they do. Secondly, it's an ability to make decisions. If you tell me find you something uh, specific and I find it for you, I need to know that you're ready to pull the trigger on it because it's, there's a lot of amount of work that goes into finding things for you. And the third, the third one, the amount of customers that will say, hey, I really need this coffee, you know, find this coffee for me or let me know when this coffee is available. And then I find it and I email them and I get nothing for the next two months of auto responses, so-and-so out of the office, on on the road, traveling, an event. I start to wonder, what is your job? Are you the buyer or are you the traveler for the company? Because if you are not available to buy the coffee, to taste the coffee, to give feedback on the coffee then you need to delegate that task to somebody that then becomes my point person. If I can't regularly communicate, then that relationship would be impossible for me. Uh, and, and I blame my own generation buyer for creating that dynamic because there was a certain uh, era where we uh, prided ourselves on the amount of days we were able to travel to origin. And we would, you know, it was almost a you know, I traveled, uh, you know, 400 days last year uh, to origin and, you know, I, I traveled 500 days. And meanwhile, you're wondering, well, how was coffee being bought and sold while you were on the road? Uh, or myself, I was trying to learn and, and didn't realize that I was hurting myself. How can we find great coffees? What kind of prices and, and, and cost of value uh, management do we need to consider? 
But also, you know, what are the goals? You know, there are ways that, that you know, our experience as, you know, small business owners in the roasting space, working in different parts of coffee that comes to bear, you know, when it comes to, you know, strategy and cash flow management and how to handle our position and, and far beyond that, uh, you know, typically that comes up, you know, within the first hour, you know, if you 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Beyond that, you know, I absolutely love buyers, you know, with a willingness to, uh, to not only have that sort of regular check-in, also, you know, have the regular structured meeting, sending forecasts ahead that I can view to where I can look at, you know, and, sh- and share our position in a, in a more sort of uh, aggregated way, you know, give a broader picture, make a more uh, sort of robust argument for what I might recommend. Giving me that opportunity to me is really satisfying. Being able to come in in a much more thoughtful way, you know, my recommendations for, you know, what business we do and how is awesome. So getting getting it in advance of, you know, sessions where we might, you know, uh, organize ourselves to do, you know, uh, a, a big, uh, you know, piece of business. And then the ongoing sort of status updates, you know, just reaching out and the forecasts are changing. Hey, this is up, this is down. Uh, you know, what can we do here? How can we be creative? Oh, I'm still thinking about that thing. Um, you know, any progress on this? You know, that stuff, uh, I know a lot of people thoughtfully avoid uh, at times, you know, where it's like, you know, there's a time to reach out and a time not to. Um, you know, that that sort of, uh, uh, there's a nice balance that can be struck um, that I, I really enjoy. Here we are at the conclusion of the first ex- exchange episode. How do you feel yeah. like it went? I think it went really well. I, uh as I expected, given that you and I would be working on this together, I, I look forward to the future episodes here. I thought this was a great subject to start out with. It's something important to both you and I, uh, wanting to actually help customers improve the way they do business. So for our inaugural episode of The Exchange, I think this has been a, a good episode. Yeah, I'm stoked. Hey, I, you know, I have to mention, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of your, uh, you know, your time on Porter Filter podcast. And so... You know, to be here now and to kind of <laughs> break the ground on this new thing is uh, not only, you know, professionally exciting, but, you know, personally exciting as well. So, you know, certainly appreciate, uh, you know, joining you here, Mark. Glad for, uh, you know, everyone who, you know, is going to take this in. We uh, welcome you to stay with us. We, uh, you know, we'll be back soon with, uh, with some more thoughts uh, to chew on. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into the exchange forward to talking to you again soon you've been listening to the exchange presented by own specialty coffee hosted by mark inman and todd Mackey, produced by mike ferguson our guest segment featured Ohm's director of development rob stephen our opening theme strong black coffee is by jared meese and the grown children rob's theme cup of coffee and a piece of pie by the ribeye brothers and right now we're listening to I'm Going for Coffee by Lee Rosevere, all used as part of Creative Commons. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon for Episode 2 of The Exchange.